Will you please turn in your Bibles to Psalm number 51, Psalm 51. You'll need a Bible. The guys have some, so they're going to make their way to the back. And if you need a Bible, they will give you one of those, and it's marked for you at Psalm 51. And when I say give, that's literal. It's a gift. Keep it. Bring it back each week so that we can look at God's Word together. One of the underappreciated features of the book of Psalms is its intentional structure. It can appear to be a loose collection, but in fact, as we were reminded last week, the 150 individual Psalms are collected into to five books. We've looked at several in the first book that go through Psalm number 41. Last week, we saw the first two in, in book number two, Psalms 42 and 43. And 43. And we noted that, as one author says, they appear to have been deliberately arranged to parallel the first five books of the Bible, sometimes called the books of the law, or the Hebrew word for law is Torah. The editors of the book of Psalms organized the collection into five books, almost certainly to display a parallel with the five books of the law as a way to say these five books of songs are the Torah of God with just as important life-regulating significance as the law itself. And because the Psalms are poetry set to song, there's another important structural feature of the five books, namely, they are each movements in a five-part cantata, with each having a, a purpose that moves toward a finale of praise in the final third of the entire book. One of the differences between the first movement and the second here in book two is that most of the psalms in Psalms 41 uh, through 41 are about individual persons, and these are about collective peoples. Both lament the prosperity of the wicked, but in book one, it's wicked individuals, and in book two, it's wicked nations. And you see that move from individuals to nations partly in the use of a different name for God. In the first book, I pointed out in prior sermons that the personal name of God, Yahweh, that's translated Lord in most of our English translations, and when it's a translation of Yahweh, you know that because all four letters of Lord are capitalized. Now in these Psalms, it's the Hebrew name Elohim, translated God, the generic title that's often used to refer to the true God of Israel, but it's also one the other nations would have used as well. The early psalms in this movement, book number two, speak of the wicked nations coming under the rule of the God of Israel. And so Psalm 46 says, nations are in uproar, kingdoms fall. He lifts his voice, the earth melts. That next Psalm 47, he subdued nations under us, peoples under our feet. The next, Psalm 48, the city of our God, his holy mountain is beautiful in its loftiness the joy of the whole earth, the city of the great king, God is in her citadels. He has shown himself to be her fortress. When the kings joined forces, when they advanced together, they saw her and were astounded. They fled in terror. Psalm 49 is a summons to the nations. Hear this, all you peoples. Listen, all who live in this world. And then the next psalm, 
God's collective people are called to Him. This consecrated people who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. And in response to this call, God's anointed king himself, David, confesses his sin and he submits his rule to the Lord's in Psalm 51 that Pastor Larry read earlier. And then the next Psalm, Psalm 52, even the king of a pagan nation responds to God's call. Now, I take the time to go through that to keep before us the intentional design of the book of Psalms and to set in context what we're going to see today in Psalm 51. While it's the confession of a king, the sin is of a particularly heinous nature, and it provides a a model for confession for each of us to emulate. So let's pray and ask God to help us. Father, we thank you for the privilege that we have already partaken of, to give back to you as you have first blessed us, to read your word in the company of your people, to join our voices in song, in in worship to you. And now we thank you for this portion of our worship, to have your word opened, and we look to learn from it and apply it to our lives. And so I ask you to grant each of us that desire, grant us the ability to focus upon what you have said and to indeed leave this place better able to serve you than we came. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, you should have received an outline for today's message when you came in. In the very first line of that outline, you see, says, reconciliation with God and others, dot, dot, dot. Now, that theme of this psalm comes from the longer-than-normal superscription that's at the top of the psalm. Normally, they say something simple like a psalm of David or a psalm of, and then the name of one of the other psalmists. But as you can see, this one says it was written, notice at the top, after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. Now, there are a couple of things in that superscription on which I plan to spend some time. And so, we will only get to the first point in the outline that you have, even though it's a four-point outline, and we will continue it, pick it up in two weeks. I say two weeks because next Sunday, the entirety of our worship hour will be devoted to the observance of the Lord's table. King David had committed adultery with Bathsheba, and it's part of a a sordid story with which many of you are familiar. It goes back to 2 Samuel chapter 11 in your Bible, and a quick summary of that story is this. One night, uh, King David was walking upon his rooftop, which is a place that people in those days would go in the evening as they had flat roofs and they could go there to enjoy the cool air. From that vantage point, David saw a beautiful woman bathing nearby and he asked his servants about her. He was told her name and that she was married to one of David's soldiers. But even though he knew that she was married, the Bible says, David sent messengers and took her, and when she came to him, he lay with her. Now, I have took her highlighted, because this was a summons, remember, from the king. And Bathsheba really had no choice in the matter, and her husband was away in battle, so she could not appeal to him for help. David took her and took advantage of her. The encounter resulted in pregnancy, something David hadn't counted on, and 
Now he endeavored to hide his sin. He now sent for Bathsheba's husband, a man named Uriah, to come home from the battlefield, spend a few days of rest with his wife, presumably sleep with her, and so the child who's already been conceived would appear to be Uriah's. But the plot was foiled when Uriah, while home for a few days, did not in fact sleep with his wife because his conscience and his integrity, in contrast to that of David, would not allow him to enjoy pleasures denied his men who were on the battlefield. David then hatched plan B, which takes the story still further downward. The king told Uriah's commander to put Uriah on the front lines of battle and then to purposefully fall back from him, leaving Uriah exposed to enemy attack and certain death, and indeed, Uriah was killed in battle. This allowed David to marry Bathsheba so that the son was born, that was born would appear to be within the bonds of marriage rather than adultery. And as a result of this, the Bible teaches that David suffered a number of consequences for what he had done. Now, some of you are sitting there thinking a couple of things. One, you're feeling better about your own sin because you haven't committed adultery, or if you have, you haven't had anyone murdered. Or secondly, you're thinking, hey, didn't I read somewhere that David was called a man after God's own heart? How can this guy be the model that God wants to highlight when he did all of this? Well, even though that was said of David, that he's a man after God's own heart, before all of this mess with Bathsheba and Uriah, still God knew what kind of character he was going to have, right? So how is David a man after God's own heart? Well, I think the phrase, man after God's own heart, has been misunderstood. As one Old Testament scholar explains, it was always God's intention for the nation of Israel to have a king. However, it was to be, this is important, God's choice as to who that would be. Yet when the time came, the Bible tells us Israel wanted a king, quote, like all the other nations. Their desire to be like the other nations tainted the entire process. God gave them the king of their choice and it did not turn out well, as that first king, Saul, was a disaster. After Saul had disqualified his kingship by disobeying God's policy directive, he was not a good king in that he didn't follow the directions God gave for the nation itself, the moves that Saul should make. The prophet Samuel then rebuked him and said, you have done a foolish thing. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. That is, this time the king will be God's choice, not the people's. And that's the way the phrase, after his own heart, was used in other literature at the time. It has to do with who's doing the choosing, and with David, it was God, and with Saul, it was the people. Now, David did, in fact, show exemplary character, quite opposite that of Saul, throughout the book of 1 Samuel, and up to this sorry episode with Bathsheba in 2 Samuel chapter 11. There are two lessons, then, to learn from 
David's failure. One, he was, of course, a sinner like every one of us. And it points out that in his life it was necessary to see a need for someone else other than this David. Someone else to come in the future, a future son of David who in fact would be completely sinless. And secondly, David did have good character overall, but he, like us, was vulnerable to sin. And as king, he was in a situation where the right circumstances could allow the power to go to his head. I can have whatever and whoever I want. David lived the truth of power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. You see, friends, for us, we each can be doing well in one set of circumstances, only to have another part of our heart exposed by a different set. Some areas of our character may not yet have been tested. And that's why the Bible says that we need to be humble and 1 Corinthians 10, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. You might be fine right now. Stick close to the Lord Jesus. Stick close to His Word. Stay with His people. Use the means of grace. Because there are recesses of your heart you know nothing about, and they can be exposed in circumstances that arise even this week. Reconciliation with God and others, I say in the outline, begins with confrontation. David tried to hide his sin. But, of course, it could not be hidden from the Lord. And the Lord ensured that David was made to deal with it before him. Notice again now the superscription at the top of Psalm 51. It says, this psalm was written when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. That confrontation that results in reconciliation is sometimes, I say in the outline, from a friend. You see, David did this. In 2 Samuel chapter 11, it tells us all the machinations that he went through to try to, to hide it, as I described. And then the last verse in that chapter says, but the thing David had done displeased the Lord. So the Lord now is going to take action. And it's interesting that the very next verse, which starts the next chapter, this is the end of 2 Samuel chapter 11, 2 Samuel chapter 12 starts with these words, the Lord sent Nathan to David. So the Lord now undertakes on behalf of his son David to reel him back in by sending Nathan to him. And let me read for you the encounter between Nathan and David in 2 Samuel chapter 12. When Nathan came to him, he said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. 
The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, you are the man. Now please remember that this took some courage on the part of Nathan to go and confront the king. Everyone knew, including David, that from a human standpoint, the king held one's life in his hand. David's unchecked power was part of what led to his sin. But that same power means that whoever confronts him is in a precarious situation as the king may not take kindly to being rebuked by anyone. But apparently, Nathan feared the Lord more than man. And he obeyed the Lord's summons to go into what could have been a dangerous mission. He had no way to know how David would respond. After Nathan goes on to give more of the Lord's message to the king, at the end, here is David's response. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. David was convicted, and so he responded well to the rebuke of the prophet. But that's because God had already been at work in David's heart, as we saw a few weeks ago when we looked at Psalm number 32. That psalm, you may remember, is about how David felt when he was trying to cover his sin. And here's what it says, I remind you. When I kept silent, My bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. But in between the misery of his guilty conscience and his confession so that he no longer covered it up was the confrontation with obedient Nathan. God was at work in David, but God used one of his people as an agent to complete that work. Now I say in the outline that the confrontation that brings reconciliation sometimes comes through a friend. David was the king, and God sent a prophet, so it's not a peer-to-peer relationship. But indeed, peer-to-peer is often how the Lord works in us to turn from our sin. A courageous brother or sister is willing to bring it to our attention. Love, friends, should motivate us to do the hard thing. Love for a brother or sister, should motivate us to be willing to speak the hard word. 
First Peter chapter 4 says, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Now, that's a quote from Proverbs chapter 10 and verse 12, but part of it is used in an interesting context at the end of the book of James. Now, you could see that verse in 1 Peter chapter 4 as just, love means you don't make a big deal of it. And to be sure, we should be willing to overlook things that are done to us. In fact, 1 Corinthians chapter 6 says, sometimes we ought to be able and willing to just bear the brunt of what's been, what's been done. But not when the behavior is harming others. Not when the behavior is harming the one doing the sin. Love then motivates us to take action on their behalf. So James chapter 5 says this, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death, and notice the phrase, cover over a multitude of sins. You see that the word love is now replaced by turning one from the error of their way. Love that covers over a multitude of sins is sometimes accomplished by doing that, by turning one from their error. Sometimes it's done by, the, by displaying love through a confrontation. Now, many years ago, I heard a preacher talk about what he called the ministry of confrontation. And it stuck with me as quite right and biblical. Now, the connotation of the word confrontation for most of us is a hostile encounter or being argumentative, but it need not be that, and in fact, is motivated by love and done by those who know us best. And that's why Proverbs says this, faithful are the wounds of a friend. Because I love you, I'm willing to say this. But in order to have the courage to do this, we will need to learn something that you've heard me say over the years. We will, each of us, need to learn to love people more than we need them. You see, part of the reason I'm unwilling to do this, part of the reason you're unwilling to do this is because you look at the possibilities. They might get mad at me. They might not be my friend anymore. And I don't say that lightly. That's a, that's a, a, a large cost to pay in a close relationship, to be sure. But if we love that brother or sister, we're willing to run the risk because we love them more than we need them. Reconciliation with God and others begins with confrontation, and sometimes that confrontation comes through the agency of another person. But whether through another person or not, I say in your outline, it always comes with the truth. You see, sometimes, and blessedly, the confrontation that's necessary in order to motivate me, motivate you to see the error of our way and thus confess and repent comes by reading God's Word on our own and seeing ourselves then in its mirror. You remember that in Scripture, the Bible, the Word of God, is in fact likened to a, a mirror into which we look. James chapter 1, anyone who listens to the Word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror 
and after looking at himself, goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. So that's the person who is a hearer of the Word but not a doer. And so I look into, you look into the mirror of the Word. The idea is to see change that needs to take place, and then the idea is to act upon that. In contrast to that foolish person, James goes on, but whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. So you see this in Scripture. You see this idea of confrontation with the truth, either through the agency of someone who loves you or through looking into the mirror of the Word of God. You see this in a number of places. Famously, one of those is in the most well-known verse in the Bible about the Bible, 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16. Here's what it says. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. That passage has four self-applied steps. So it doesn't necessarily then involve another person in the confrontation, but it's a confrontation with the truth found in the mirror of the Word of God. And so these are four self-applied steps that produce confession and repentance in our lives as we read and study God's Word. Those four are teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training. Now, notice that rebuking is there, but here it comes not by the agency of another person, but from the teaching of the Word, which immediately precedes it. And these four items are in logical order for a couple of reasons. One, because you cannot do them in any other order. You cannot be rebuked before you've been taught. You cannot be corrected before you've been rebuked regarding the thing that needs correction. And so they are in a, a logical order. And secondly, Paul, who wrote this in the context, was already thinking sequentially because just before this verse about this process in the Christian life, he's spoken about how the Christian life itself begins. So two verses just before, he says to his protege, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of because you know those from whom you learned it and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And so verses 14 and 15 are about salvation, the beginning of the Christian life. And that's then followed, logically, sequentially, by verse 16, sanctification, or the walk of the Christian life. Salvation, then sanctification, and sanctification requires these four steps that are in verse 16. And we'll display that for you then again. We'll display that for you again, I think. <laughs> Jesus said in John chapter 17, on the night before He was crucified, He asked the Father in this, what's called Jesus' high priestly prayer, that goes all the way through verse 26 of John chapter 17. And Jesus prays for those who will be his followers after he departs. And he says to the Father in John 17 and verse 17, 
Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. Sanctify them by your word. Sanctify them by the truth. That is, make them holy. Set them apart. Cause spiritual growth in their lives. How? Through your truth. Your word is truth. Therefore, the Scriptures, friends, when accompanied by the work of the Holy Spirit, are the most potent change agent in the universe. The Word of God is designed to change you and change me. And as His children, we have His Holy Spirit, and therefore what He said resonates within us. So how do the Scriptures function to change us? 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 offer this four-step process by which the change occurs. I'd like to step through each of these. First of all, there is the teaching. And the teaching is, as I've said, a confrontation with the truth. The content of the Word of God is the catalyst for the change that needs to occur in each of our lives as we, in an ongoing way, grow into Christ-likeness. As we've seen, the Bible acts as a a mirror for us. And when we compare ourselves to the absolutely righteous standards of the Word of God, then we usually observe a gap. So the content of the Word is the catalyst for the change, and blessedly, because God loves us and God has made provision for us in order for us to have the tools we need to grow in Him in an ongoing way, the content of the Word is exhaustive. It has everything we need for life and godliness. That's why the last phrase in that passage, it's actually verses 16 and 17 that we have displayed there, and it says God has done this, notice now the third line down, so that, for the purpose that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped, notice for how many works, every good work. And that's why we say the Word of God then in its content is exhaustive. Now, the Bible does not address every issue of life directly. But it does address every issue of life either directly or indirectly. That is, all issues are covered in Scripture either in precept or in principle. That's why we can speak of the sufficiency of the Scriptures. It is the Word of God that we need. Regular intake in your life, day by day, week by week when we come together, So step one is teaching. Friends, if you're not regularly taught the Word of God, if you're not regularly looking into the mirror of the Word of God, then you're not going to see anything to change. You're not going to see anything wrong with it. If somebody else says to you, hey, you know, maybe you shouldn't be doing that, or hey, maybe you should be doing this, you're going to say something like, I don't see anything wrong with it. Well, yeah. That's why you need somebody else to come to you. That's why you need to be in the Word to look into the mirror to see that yourself. Step one, teaching is a confrontation with the truth. That leads to step two then. That gap, rebuking. And rebuking happens in the clash between sin and righteousness. We see God's holy standard, His righteous standard, and then we see where we are And they're not the same. 
The word translated rebuke is translated elsewhere in your New Testament. It's the same Greek word for conviction. You could substitute the word convicting there. That the Word of God is useful for teaching, and then that results in convicting, rebuking. So this conviction is the result of confrontation with the truth. The Bible exposes our sin. And if you care to jot down any of these passages that I'm going to rattle off in the next few minutes, but Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12, Hebrews 4, 12. So the Word of God is alive and active. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. You see, if you are regularly in the Word of God, you're regularly being confronted then. The Bible exposes our sin and this fancy theological term, the noetic effects of sin... (laughs) necessitate that we have the Word to provide this conviction. Noetic, nous, is the Greek word in your New Testament for the mind. And the noetic effects of sin are the effects of sin on the way we think. And sinful people don't think straight. We don't think right. We need the Word of God to set our thinking right. And that's why the prophet Jeremiah said, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? The mind outside of Christ is downright hostile to God. Romans chapter 8 and verse 7, the mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. And even the great apostle Paul, perhaps the greatest Christian who ever lived, said of himself in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, I care very little if I'm judged by you or any human court. Indeed, hear this, indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. Do you see what he's saying there? On my own, the way I think about it might make me feel like, yeah, everything's good, but that doesn't make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. So conviction comes as a result of this confrontation with the truth, and this conviction has, contrary to popular opinion in evangelical circles, not a subjective but an objective basis. When I was growing up, we very often talked about having convictions about a particular thing. Do you have a conviction about listening to this kind of music, going to watch this kind of movie? Do you have a conviction about it? And when I was in high school, a Christian high school, where we talked about this kind of thing a lot, people who had such convictions seemed to be pretty miserable. In fact, the way we spoke of having convictions sounded like having measles. So I just thought, I'm just not going to have any of that while I'm in high school. So some people had them and some people didn't. But in Scripture, conviction has an objective basis. It's not a matter of feeling. One has defined it well, I think. It's a legal term used to denote the prosecution of a case against one who has broken the law. In God's Word, precept or principle, directly or indirectly, He tells me what I'm supposed to think and say and do. And when I fail to do that, then conviction for breaking His law, His standard, results. Now, if God leaves it here, we're in a world of hurt. 
If there's a period after rebuking, all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching and rebuking, period. Hope it works out for you. But because God is gracious to us, it moves on. The Word of God provides the information that we need in order to correct, which is the answer to conviction. Correcting. The Bible does not leave us in our guilt after conviction. Between rebuking and correcting may be an agent, a person to confront us. Or in our own study, we come to see our failings. And Scripture provides the instruction by which the wrong can be made right. The word translated correction means to cause to stand. So something has previously fallen, and now the Word of God gives instruction on how that thing that has fallen can stand. Here are a few of the things that the Bible gives us in order to correct, to cause to stand. It requires that we, in scriptural language, quote, put off sinful behavior. So the Word of God itself says, Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 22, Ephesians 4, 22, put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires. Now, many people, too many people, think that the Christian life is simply a matter of what you avoid doing. So put off bad stuff. Avoid bad stuff. But the Christian life is not about just avoiding bad stuff. As a matter of fact, when the Bible tells you not to do things, it's always for the purpose that you can actually accomplish the things that He's laid out for you. You have to set these things aside so that you can actually do this. So do not have any other gods before me. Do not use the name of the Lord your God in vain. Now why, over and over, does the Bible have these prohibitions? Here's why. Because on two commands hang all the law. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your mind, and all of your soul. And so you can't use His name in vain. You can't have any other gods before Him if you're going to love Him. And love your neighbor as yourself. And so do not steal, and do not defraud, and do not commit adultery. All of these things on a horizontal level. And so we put off sinful behavior. But that's not the end. It's not only not the end. It's the means to the end of what we, in scriptural language, put on. Ephesians 4.24, put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. And that passage goes on then to talk about attitudes and speech patterns and behaviors. And the Word of God provides all of this. And then the final step, step four, training. And training is the habit of correct behavior. The Scriptures provide not only directions to correct sinful behavior, but also that which is needed to continue in the paths of righteousness. You see, friends, God is not interested in just a one-time transaction, but rather that we instill in our lives habits, training, that continues to move us in a righteous direction. The word that's translated training is the word for discipline. This suggests that habits of godliness require effort and work. Godly discipline requires constant exposure to the Word of God. 
Colossians 3.16, let the message of Christ dwell among you richly. The word dwell means to settle down, to be at home. The word cannot have its dwelling if it's not taken in regularly. And godly discipline, godly training requires regular, regular study of and meditation on the word of God. So I read it, you read it, you take it in regularly, you're taught it, you avail yourselves of the opportunities that God's church gives you to be taught His Word. You study it, and then you think about it. You meditate. You mull it over. How does that apply in my life? Psalm number 1, verse 1, Blessed is the one who, whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on His law day and night. It's mental exercise, rehearsal, integration of the truth into thought and action. Friends, reconciliation with God and with others begins with confrontation. It's always confrontation with the truth. Sometimes it's confrontation brought by a brother or sister who loves us. And sometimes God has called you to be that agent of mercy in the life of someone else. So I encourage you to think about who do you have in your life that God has placed there with whom they know you love them. They know you have their best interest at heart. And you know they are not doing what the Lord God says. You have an obligation if you love them to go to them. Love covers over a multitude of sins. They may not like it. They may not receive you. There is a cost associated with it. Jesus is worth it, and seeing Jesus' image developed in the lives of those we love is worth it. You need people in your life that can do that with you as well so that you're open to say, tell me what you see because I want to strive to be like our Lord. Now, your take-home truth is way down at the bottom, and there's a bunch of stuff in between that we'll get to in two weeks because next week we will observe the Lord's table together. Let's bow before the Lord. Our Father, we thank you again for allowing us the privilege of being able to be before you in your presence with your people. And all that we've been able to do according to your instructions to worship you in a way that you desire. So we thank you for this. Thank you for this passage and just the context of Psalm number 51 and all that is swirling around it that's instructive for us in our day, in our lives. Help me, Lord. Help us to desire Christ-likeness in ourselves so that we are open to correction. Help us to desire Christ-likeness in the lives of those you have placed in our spheres of influence so that we're willing to risk confront loving confrontation. And I ask you that that would happen this week, that that would happen over the next month. Lord, we would ask your Holy Spirit to go before and work in the hearts of those who would receive these words of love designed to change and to receive them as intended. And as a result of that obedience, Lord, may we see people respond as King David did. I have sinned before the Lord so that we can move forward in righteousness. And we will give you the praise in Jesus' name. Amen.